Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Everybody can hear me okay? Um, I want to welcome everyone here in the audience and also those um, watching remotely. And um, for those who are watching remotely, I'm going to read our uh, CME sign-in code. <clears throat> the code is TMS2. TMS2. So I hope you all got that. And with that, I have the um, great privilege of introducing today's speaker, Samuel Silverstein. He's a graduate of Dartmouth College and of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He did a postdoctoral fellowship in cell biology at Rockefeller University and stayed on as a faculty member uh, until he became the John C. Dalton Professor of Physiology and Cellular Biophysics and Professor of Medicine at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He chaired the Department of Physiology and Cellular Biophysics at Columbia for nearly 20 years and is an internationally recognized scientist whose research has advanced understanding of the structure and function of white blood cells and their roles in host defense against viral and bacterial pathogens in tumors. He has over 200 publications and work spanning the disciplines of cell biology, cellular physiology and immunology, infectious diseases, and systems biology. Dr. Silverstein is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, an elected member of the American Society for Clinical Investigation, the American Association of Physicians, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the National Academy of Medicine, and he's an honorary member of Dartmouth's chapter of Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, his other academic passion, however, is improving the quality of secondary science education. He's the founder and director of Columbia University's Summer Research Program for Science Teachers, which has contributed to the professional development of 315 science teachers to the benefit of more than a quarter million secondary students in New York. Outcomes of the program have been published in Science Magazine, and I'll let him tell you more about that this morning. Uh, but before I pass the microphone to him, I have to take um, this opportunity to highlight a couple of his achievements in a third field. Um, in, and this is just for fun. I hope you'll let me do this. <laughs> in 1962, he and five companions made the first ascent of Denali's Southeast Spur. And as an Alaskan, which I am, that particularly warms my heart. Um, however, the rest of you may be more impressed by his role as a co-organizer and participant in the expedition that first ascended Antarctica's four highest summits, for which he is a recipient of the National Geographic Society's John Oliver LaGorse Medal. Um, one of the subsidiary summits of Mount Vinson, which is Antarctica's highest peak, was named Peak Silverstein by the U.S. Geological Survey in 2006. So pretty cool. <laughs> and um, it's really a great pleasure to welcome you this morning. Uh, I'll let you um, take over and talk to us and inspire us about teaching. Thank you. When my friend Nick Clench heard that they'd named a mountain after him, he said, better a peak than a crevasse. <laughs> uh, I, I am here this morning because I've had a wonderful education. Uh, and uh, that education I want to see available to every kid in the United States. Uh, and so uh, this is a talk about education and at what you at Dartmouth could do for uh, science teachers, health teachers uh, in the Upper Valley, perhaps in all of Vermont and New Hampshire. And so let's get started. There we go. So uh, just to keep you oriented, I'm going to start first about deficiencies in U.S. science education and then talk about deficiencies in U.S. K-12 health education. Uh, go on from there to the impacts of these deficiencies on the health, financial, physical, and mental of individuals and the effectiveness of healthcare professions, professionals and healthcare uh, institutions and the success actually of our democracy because this all has to do uh, with uh, functioning in a democratic society. And then I want to tell you about the program we founded at Columbia and finally I'd like to try and convince you that uh, a similar program could be started here at Dartmouth and that you could do a great deal uh, for health education and science education uh, in uh, this area. So why should healthcare professionals 
at Goswell School of Medicine and at Dartmouth-Hitchcock be involved in K through 12 science education. Uh, you may ask yourself, you've got plenty to do. I'm not uh, at all abused of the idea that uh, you don't have more than 24 hours uh, in the day and that you don't have enough to, uh, to do to fill that time. Uh, but I think this is a, uh, an area in which you need to think because I'll show you some of your own data that make me say, make me say that. Uh, the reasons here are simple. Because preparations in science and math in high school is essential for success in college, wherever you go to college, and in life. Because they're essential for many of the most humanly rewarding and remunerative activities in the 21st century. You all know that. You've been beneficiaries of good educations. Because understanding these matters is essential for voting on the many critical issues that face our society. But the average level of our nation's K through 12 uh, uh, educational achievement is significantly the, below that of our international competitors and significantly below what it needs to be. The second reason is because understanding how to maintain one's physical and mental health, how to evaluate evolving healthcare information, how to raise healthy children are critical, are critical to one's own and one's children's physical, emotional, and economic well-being. But health education in many of our nation's schools, in fact, if they have a health educator at all, is woefully insufficient. And because 90 million Americans are, you know this, because you operate in our health clinics, and you know how many people don't follow the doctor's advice. And they can't, uh, 90 million Americans are either health illiterate or health enumerate. And they can't understand physicians' explanation of their illnesses and their rationale for treatment. That's a critical problem, which you must deal with every day. And finally, because introductory high school biology and health courses are likely to be the last formal education most kids have in biology and health. Once they get to college, many of them don't take any further uh, biology or health, and uh, <coughs> formal education is gone. So what's the evidence for all of this? And what are the consequences? Well, first of all, I've said our nation's K through 12 students' level of education is significantly below that needed to meet the challenges individuals, our nation, and the world face now and in the foreseeable future. When did all this begin? It'll surprise many of you, I think, to know that it was Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Education, Terrence Bell, uh, an educator from Utah, who is the only Secretary of Education or Cabinet Secretary I know who drove a pickup truck to Washington. Uh, the current Secretary of the Interior, uh, when she uh, registered uh, at the bank in Washington, the uh, bank clerk asked, what's your job? And she said, Secretary, and she duly wrote down Secretary. Uh, the same was true for Terrence Bell. He was a very down-to-earth guy. And he, uh, not with Reagan's permission, but independently, uh, created a, a, a large panel that looked at our education in the United States and published in 1983 a book called A Nation at Risk. I urge all of you to look at it because it's as true today as it was in 1983. And it begins the educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and a people. If an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today, that was 1983, we might well have viewed it as an act of war. The same situation is prevalent today. Why do I say that? Well, here's a very complicated slide that looks at the Program for International Student Assessment. That's a worldwide operation of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. 
and every three years they, uh, they test students you know, all over the world. And here you see various countries and their performance in math, in science, and in reading. The United States ranks 27th in math. It ranks 23rd in science. It ranks 17th in reading. That's our own language. We're not, we're not talking about Americans reading Chinese now. We're talking about Americans reading English. And uh, devastatingly, if you look at these numbers down here, you'll see that there is a very large percent, 25% of American students uh, who perform at a below level two. That's basic or below. And you'll see in contrast to the really high performing nations uh, like, uh, Shang like Shanghai, Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, Taiwan, Finland, uh, Liechtenstein, Switzerland, etc., cetera, uh, that the, their top performing students, proficient and above proficient, are in the 40s and 30% uh, level, and we're down at 8%. So we're not only an ex in excess of students who are below proficient, but we're also in excess, in, in deficit, for those who are above proficient and beyond. Now, this is a, another complicated slide, but I want to take you through it because it's how students are ranked in reading. Our state governments make sure that, uh, that parents in their state are satisfied by creating tests that are simpler and less demanding than what we know the national standard ought to be. The national standard is the National Ass Assessment of Educational Performance, and it parallels the PISA tests, the international tests. You see the only state in, uh, in uh, reading here at fourth grade that whose tests are as demanding as the uh, PISA test and as NAEP tests is Massachusetts's own state test, and here in grade eight it's uh, South Carolina. And every other state, including yours, uh, here you are in New Hampshire, and here over here uh, at eighth grade, your tests are easier, easier to pass, easier uh, and proficiency than the standard of international tests. That's, that's not a, a standard we ought to ascribe to. And Dartmouth certainly is not a school where uh, the average is acceptable. Uh, we want uh, students who behave and are functional at far above the, uh, the average level. Uh, you can see that NAEP basic here is two, 208. That's basic reading. And you can see that New Hampshire falls right at that level. Uh, here, Virginia is below that level. And all of the uh, states here below this line are, are, are telling students they're proficient when they're not proficient at all. The same uh, over here as you get down lower. <clears throat> Here's your own data. The statewide graduation rate in 2015 in New Hampshire was 88.1%. That's above the national average of 83%. The same for Vermont, 89%. When you look at Hanover High School, the graduation rate is 99%. Can't do better than that. And the same with Lebanon High School, 98%. But I've colored these half and half because if you look at the English proficiency on the same kind of NAEP scale, what you see is only 80% of Hanover High School kids are actually really proficient in English and only 77% for Lebanon High School. And when you look at math, characteristically, math is always lower. And you see that's only 67% of one of the best high schools in the state and in the nation are proficient in math and only 52% at Lebanon High School. Those are things that you can change. We have no excuse 
for uh, performance at that level, except that we're not demanding a level of excellence that we could demand and we could make standard throughout the United States. What's the annual uh, economic benefit of increasing the high school graduation rate from a current 83% to 90%? It turns out for the United States, it's over $40 billion, and in the state of New Hampshire alone, it's 319 million. Those are big, big numbers. Uh, make no mistake about it, if you told the national government we we're giving them a gift for education of $41 billion, they'd accept it, and the state government here of $319 million, they'd accept it, and it would make a huge difference. So bringing the standard up from 83 to 90% has a big impact on both tax revenues, on crime costs, and the most stunning number is the increased longevity of high school graduates, 9.2 years. That's more than 10% of a lifetime. How can it be that simply graduating from high school increases your life by 9.2 years? Well, you're less likely to be in poverty, you're less likely to be in jail, you're less likely to have a child out of wedlock, all of the bad things, you're less likely to take drugs, alcohol, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, you can look these numbers up. They're highly reproducible and have been for a long time. Let's go on to the subject of health education. In many of our nation's schools, I've said it's woefully inadequate and frequently non-existent. In New York City, it's a disaster. There are many districts that don't teach students health at all. Uh, they've concentrated in reading and math, and uh, there's no health taught. And if you look at the mean percentage of U.S. schools that teach a required health education course in each grade, you see that these are low numbers. You wouldn't accept these numbers of your residents, of your, uh, of your medical students, and you certainly wouldn't accept them uh, uh, for your children. And here in New Hampshire schools, it's not a terrific score. Uh, it's uh, at best 75% and at worst less. Uh, and these are percent of either U.S. or New Hampshire schools that uh, teach, uh, have a requisite health course. If you look at the percentage of secondary schools in which the lead health education teacher had professional preparation, preparation in health education or in health and physical education combined, New Hampshire, it's said to be 65%. I'm sorry to say the more I've looked at these data, the less I believe them. There are only 57,000 health educators in the United States. There are more than 100,000 schools, and that New Hampshire should have a 65% uh, uh, professionally prepared health education, health educator in each of its secondary schools and its intermediate schools is got to be a fiction. Uh, I don't know what the real number is, but it's not spectacular, nor is the number for Vermont, as you can see. Uh, the New Hampshire Education Department has a, a wonderful website. I urge all of you to go look at it. It has all the right stuff, all the right stuff. And it surveys teachers every two years. It surveys schools every two years. Uh, if you look at that website for 2016, you'll see the percent of schools in which the lead health teacher participated in professional development being brought up to date on human sexuality, pregnancy, and sexually transmitted disease uh, in the last two years was 37%. If uh, you didn't get continuing education here at, uh, at Geisel and at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, uh, more frequently than every two years, you couldn't practice medicine. Uh, the medicine you, pr you practice uh, would be uh, inadequate and out of date. The percent of schools in which the lead health teacher would like to receive professional development, indicating that the professional development they do get is, is rather rudimentary, and that's true for professional development across the board, 75 to 80 percent of teachers responded they'd like additional PD in addressing student health knowledge, behavior change, tobacco use, suicide prevention, in other words, everything. Uh, that's 75 to 80 percent of teachers 
responding to the state's own survey. Uh, but there is no systematic way of providing that kind of information. That's a tragedy, because what kids learn in high school and middle school health is probably the substance of what they will take with them throughout their lives. And what's the cost of all this? Healthy behaviors correlate with academic success. And so you see carried a weapon, current cigarette use, current alcohol use, currently sexually active, watch three hours or more of television, of television per day, and physically active uh, at least, uh, uh, well, it, at least five days a week. Uh, I don't know what happened here. Uh, you can see the kids who get mostly Ds and Fs excel in every category. Kids get As are way down in every category. It's not that everybody isn't experimenting and that I don't understand teenagers. It's that, uh, that uh, if you're going to get good grades, uh, you aren't going to be uh, uh, watching television three or more hours a week, uh, three or more hours a day, uh, and all of these other uh, social uh, dysfunctions, if you like, uh, are less prevalent among high performers. All of these numbers, by the way, uh, I didn't make them up. Uh, they come from the CDC or from the state. Uh, you, can get, you can take them off the web anytime you want. What about uh, Americans' uh, health literacy and numeracy? The physician, this is one of the anecdotes I took off the web. And a physician wrote, take three quarters of a teaspoonful of this medicine daily. And so what did the enumerate patient do? He took three teaspoons full four times a day. That's at least 12 times the amount of medicine the doctors prescribe. That's not a unique example. There are many, many more. Uh, what about uh, uh, literacy? If you look at read instructions for preparation for an upper GI uh, uh, exam, uh, if you're below basic in reading, 57% of patients get it wrong. If they're at basic, 11%, 12% get it wrong. And even those who are in the intermediate category, 3.5% uh, three, get it wrong. Rights and responsibilities section of a Medicaid application. 81% wrong, 31% wrong, 7%. And finally, standard informed consent to come to this hospital. Uh, errors in below basic are 95%, 72%, 21%. All of these numbers are huge. You know that. You see the errors all the time. What does it cost? The estimated cost of health illiteracy and numeracy is 110 to $230 billion a year. Economists are having difficulty getting their hands on a very close number, so I've given you the two range, the range. That's 3.6 to 7.6% of all U.S. health expenditures. We spend $3 trillion a year, more than any other country in the world, on health. And we're throwing away 110 to $230 billion because people can't read and they can't count. Uh, people are ashamed to admit it, uh, but they need help. And one of the reasons they come to the emergency room, uh, I gather, rather than coming to the clinic, is in the clinic they have to fill out forms. But in the emergency room, everyone asks them questions and moves them along. And so illiteracy actually... Uh, fosters going to the emergency room for health rather than going uh, and keeping a clinic appointment. Finally, I've said introductory high school biology and introductory health courses are likely the last formal education most kids will have in, uh, uh, in health and in phys human physiology. I want to tell you that the next generation science standards are written by Colleagues at the National Academy of Sciences are terribly flawed. They have invented a new, uh, a new paradigm for teaching biology in high school for freshmen in biology, which is a wonderful cell and molecular biology course. But if you ask what kids want, what kids 
and need, it's how do I work? That's what ninth graders are interested in. They're not interested in the uh, niceties of how mitochondria communicate with the cytoplasm or how uh, insulin receptors work. They're interested in how does my body work? How does my heart work? How does my circulatory system work? How does my pancreas work? How, what's digestion? How does it work? Uh, and we ought to have a basic physiology and biochemistry course uh, for students in ninth grade. And AP biology can be cell and molecular biology, but it shouldn't be uh, in ninth grade biology. That's the time to make sure that everybody knows how their own systems work. Uh, I hope you'll go to the uh, web and look at the next generation science standards and, and make a judgment for yourself. In the index of the next generation science standards, there's not one mention of immunization, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, uh, of uh, how the heart works. Uh, there is mention of the nervous system, but only briefly. Uh, take a look. The best and smartest people in the country have prescribed a new science paradigm that I think uh, doesn't meet our standards. And suddenly, uh, the National Governors Conference is waking up to that. And uh, you'll see on the web that uh, the next generation science standards are now being revised. So what can Geisel School of Medicine and Dartmouth-Hitchcock uh, Hospital uh, health professionals do to improve science and health education locally throughout the upper uh, Connecticut Valley? Well, it's not something systemic. Uh, the, N the National Science Foundation tried with urban systemic reform, state systemic reform. Uh, uh, the uh, various foundations have put uh, millions and millions of dollars into various systemic reforms and they've all failed. Why? Because education in middle school, in high school, in college, in graduate school, education is up to the teacher when the door closes. And so, I hate to say it, but rather than trying to improve the system, let's do what the best spies and the best uh, the best infiltrators do, let's do it one teacher at a time. And let's help the teachers so that they can do in that closed room with the students, they can demand a higher standard of excellence. And so I created a program like this in 1990. Uh, and I created it because education research, even in 1990, not so profoundly as today, education and research in 1990 demonstrated that teacher quality is the single most important determinant of student academic success. What students learn in your lab, in your lectures, in any environment, is how good you are at getting it across. The central strategy for improving U.S. schools and the academic of success of students in them is the recruitment, preparation, and continual professional development and retention of highly qualified teachers and principals. Let me say straight at the outset uh, that schools will tell you, oh, we don't have any money for that. Two to four percent of every school's budget is for professional development. You don't, having seen the figures I've given you, have to ask very often, how good is that professional development? I've shown you how good it is. You can do a much better job. So I started the program uh, that brings science teachers into Columbia University for two consecutive summers. Uh, two consecutive summers because in my experience, high school and college kids who came to my lab, who came for one summer, I could write them a great recommendation for college. But if they came back the second summer, they actually learned a, one whale of a lot more. I invested much more heavily in them, and it was a real partnership and success. And they left with substantially more than they got in the first summer. It's rare to find a basketball coach who's never played basketball. 
but 90% of U.S. science teachers have never, never been challenged to solve a real scientific question using the tools of contemporary science. You just think back to your college labs and ask, was that investigation or was that cookbook chemistry? And I wager that 90% of you will say it was cookbook chemistry and not until you got into your own lab uh, and, or someone else's lab as a graduate student or a postdoc and began to try and solve real problems did you really understand what science was about. Here's one of our classes. This is Jay Dubner, uh, a special ed teacher who ran this program spectacularly uh, for me for uh, 20 years. Uh, the program has, has brought in 350 middle and high school science teachers, 88% uh, from public schools, 55% women, 46% minorities. We never take teachers in the first three years of teaching. Jeffrey Canada said, when I was teaching in the first couple of years, I was a disaster. Beginning teachers are trying to learn the curriculum, the school, how to manage the classroom. They're not ready for uh, a, a, a graduate level uh, uh, improvement in their uh, teaching abilities. And here you see how years of experience uh, uh, improve uh, teachers teaching math, biology, chemistry, and physics. Why are chemistry and physics so much higher than the others? Because chemistry and physics are really new. Kids have no experience really with chemistry and physics. And so those are really new subjects for them and that's why they're way up here. Uh, kids, many kids, biology for instance in high school is simply a repetition of what they've learned uh, in middle school. Uh, so when your kids go to school and the principal says, we have a wonderful new teacher that we just hired. She just finished Columbia Teachers College. Don't be fooled. That's not a benefit. Your kid is getting an experiment. Your kid is down here. And only if she says, I've just hired a new science teacher and that science teacher has had three years of experience teaching someplace else science. Now you know that something good is happening. So we only accept teachers into this program who have passed the first three years. Uh, and we do that for these reasons. W what is the program like? It's eight weeks and two consecutive summers. That's a lot of time. That's the full time during the summer for two consecutive summers. So the teacher has to be committed. We pay the teacher five to $6,000 a summer, depending upon how good I am at writing grants that year. Uh, program enhancement support, we give 500 to $1,000 to each teacher uh, per summer to purchase equipment and supplies for their school because we know school uh, equipment and supplies are simply inadequate. One of the first years we ran this program, we had a returned Peace Corps volunteer, and uh, he said, I said, we have a little money uh, that we give you in the summer so that you can uh, purchase things for your schools. He said, how much is that? I said, $1,000. He said, $1,000? That's larger than the supply budget for my whole science department in my public school in New York. Uh, so what we consider nothing they consider uh, a substantial amount. Uh, and if they put those $2,000 together or pair up with other teachers in the school, they can buy a substantial amount of equipment. The host laboratory, we give $1,000 per summer to because when we're not interested in pulling away experimental money from host labs. We want to make sure that the host lab is made whole and so all the teachers Xeroxing lab coats, uh, chemicals, whatever it is that the lab has to buy for the teacher, they're being re reimbursed through this mechanism. Four days a week for eight weeks each summer are spent in a Columbia lab uh, under the direction of a Columbia faculty member. Uh, I don't call up the faculty member and tell them what I want them to do with the teacher. 
if you want to get uh, run out of town quickly, you try that with any faculty member at any university in this country, and you will leave town very shortly thereafter, uh, because uh, these are highly successful labs. And they're in engineering, they're in uh, earth science, they're in physics, they're in chemistry, astronomy. Every discipline is represented at Columbia University. Uh, and so we can, we can accommodate almost anything. And uh, we even had a teacher who was interested in uh, forensics. And so we sent that teacher to the New York City Medical Examiner's Office for two summers. And the teacher became superb at DNA fingerprinting. A uh, graduate student postdoctoral fellow with whom the teacher worked in the summer is paid to consult with the teacher by phone or email five hours a month and to visit the teacher's school one day a month with the permission of their sponsor. Uh, uh, that means that the teacher can discuss uh, doing uh, difficult lessons or difficult experiments and then have the, the graduate student there uh, or the postdoc to help them actually implement the experiment. Uh, what do they do in their lab assignments? Well, prior to each program entry, each teacher's program entry, they, uh, they meet with the lab head or the people in the lab they're going to work with and work out a plan for what this summer's experiments will look like. They may work on an entirely new experiment that uh, the lab head wants to get started, or they may work on an ongoing experiment. Uh, in life sciences, they're in uh, all the fields. Physical science is the same thing. Uh, and each teacher works on a specific research project. They may work on it for two consecutive years, or they may come back the second year, get learn what happened to the project uh, at, at, in one year, and then start something new. Uh, they participate as regular members of their faculty mentors research team. They work shoulder to shoulder with other lab members four to five days a week, and they participate in lab meetings, journal clubs, parties, uh, whatever the lab does, they do. And so they have a real experience with what, honest to God, investigational science is about. Uh, that experience uh, changes the way they behave. By the middle of the summer, every teacher in the group, in one way or another, will say to me, when I go back to my school in the fall, this is in the first year, when I go back to my school in the fall, I'm not going to say that's right and that's wrong. I'm going to say, why do you think that? You guys want me to know the right answer, but you want me to know why it's the right answer. Why is the solution 0.9% sodium chloride to make an isotonic buffer? Why is it buffered at pH 7.4? All of those questions you, you want me to know the answer to, as well as to understand that if I don't make the buffer at pH 7.4, I've got a problem. Uh, they also say, when I go back to my school and kids ask me a question I don't know the answer to, really know the answer to, I'm not going to give them a kickapoo answer that I can make up. I'm going to say, you stump me. I don't know. But I'll tell you how we could find out. Now, that's a real incentive. You stump the teacher, but now the teacher is laying it back on you and saying to you, we need to do some research in order to find out what the answer is. That is a whole new way of approaching students. Here you see the chairman of medicine at Columbia, uh, Don Landry, uh, uh, working uh, with uh, a chemistry teacher, Alan Hiss. Don, his PhD is in chemistry from Harvard, and uh, uh, he's helping her with a set of bio biochemical experiments. So what are the results of this program? Well, if they weren't positive, I certainly wouldn't be here, right? Uh, <laughs> The amazing thing is that these are the first, first, and almost still the only results of the outcome of all of the professional development for programs for teachers you've seen. There are lots of, did the teacher have a good time? Oh, yes, best program I've ever been involved in. That doesn't tell you anything. 
What you want to know is, did the teacher go back to the school and do anything different? So what did we find? We f these are very low-performing schools, as you can see. So 45 to 45% of the kids in, this, in these schools were passing the New York State Regents exams in biology, chemistry, and <clears throat> excuse me, earth science. 45%. That's a terrible number. Uh, and uh, the teachers who were not involved in the program were the control group, and the experimental group were, of course, teachers who were in the program, and then finished the program, and we followed them for two years after they finished the program. And what you see is at the end of uh, the third and fourth year out, 10% more of their kids are passing the New York State Regents exams. We don't have data for how many of these kids excelled on the New York State Regents exams. I'd love to have such data. It was hard enough to get these. To, it took us uh, 15 years uh, to get this data set so it was statistically significant. And we published it, we saved our data until it was statistically significant so we could put it in science so it would be accessible to everyone in the world and would be read by a lot of people. Uh, now, this says some important things. It says there's nothing exceptional about these teachers. It's not that they're outrageously smart. If they were, they would already have been performing above average. But they must have understood that uh, they could do better if they simply had the knowledge that would allow them to do better. And I think that's one of the important reasons they enrolled in the program. And you see what the outcome is. You see that the coast up is not straight to 54% or 53%. It takes three to four years. If you think about changing your behavior in teaching, if you've ever tried to do that, you know how long it takes before you learn new techniques and new ways of getting across. If you look at surgeons trying to do a new operation, you know how long it takes before they really become proficient at it. If you look at anyone trying to learn anything new, you know that it doesn't happen for a golfer, it doesn't happen for our football team, it doesn't happen for anybody. It's a slow process. And what you're seeing here is the truth. I wish I knew whether this line continued to project up or whether it plateaus. But whatever it does, 10% is a big number. Ten per, a teacher teaches 100 kids a year, so it means, it means 10 of those kids every year that wouldn't have passed the state regents exam in uh, one of these subjects is, is passing. What about uh, teacher retention? Suddenly, we found that these teachers drop out of teaching at a slower rate than Texas science teachers, Teach for America teachers. They drop out at about 2% a year. That rate of dropout is equivalent to the rate of people getting sick in this world. 2% a year is nothing. If we had that dropout rate, schools would be more stable. If we had that dropout rate nationally, schools would be more stable. They'd be much better places. Uh, what about teachers' self-reports of the impact of participating in the program? 90% develop new or revised uh, content to lessons and labs. 90% increased hands-on classroom activities. 78% introduced new technologies. You can read the rest of the slide. Uh, what happens is we re-energize them, or they re-energize themselves. I'm not claiming that I stand there and wind them up in the morning. That's not true. What happens is they get energized by the very process uh, of being in a university and doing science. The, the accomplishments of these teachers are unbelievable. Uh, in addition to the 25,000 more students uh, who have uh, passed the Regent Science exam, seven Columbia Research Program graduates have been recognized by the Alfred P. Sloan Award, New York City uh, Fund for Education, 
that's the highest award New York City gives. And we've had one awardee among the eight for seven, uh, for six out of the seven years the award has been given. Uh, four Columbia teachers were NOAA at sea awardees, and there are many more. This list could go down through the floor. Uh, I've stopped it here. Now, what's the reason for all this? Well, Harold Wenglinski, who when he was at the uh, Scholastic Aptitude, uh, at, uh, uh, at Scholastic Aptitude uh, Testing Service, uh, studied uh, teachers uh, who were, had the highest performing kids on the 1996 NAEP. And what he found was the characteristics of those teachers were they had an academic major or minor in the science, and that accounted for 0.39 years of improvement of their students on the NAEP. If they had professional development and laboratory skills, it was 0.44 of a year. If they had weekly implementation of hands-on classroom and lab exercises, it's 0.4 of a year. And no surprise, if they gave a weekly multiple choice and short answer quiz, it was 0.92 of a year. When I ran the physiology department, we gave a weekly quiz. The biochemists would say to us, you know, the kids are doing nothing but studying physiology each week. I said, the reason for that is we give a weekly quiz. He said, well, you got to stop it. They're not studying biochemistry. I said, why don't you give a weekly quiz? I said, that's a lot of work. I said, that's why we're winning and you're losing. It's pretty simple. Uh, so you see this accounts for 2.15 years. You can get rid of the weekly quiz and these numbers still stay the same. What are the economic benefits of student success? Well, uh, we account, uh, our numbers say that we have saved the city of New York between 17 million and 25 million for kids who don't have to repeat courses, don't have to go to summer school, don't have to do all the other things, and for teacher retention. You didn't have to hire more teachers. We're not the only people who have run this program. So it's not idiosyncratic to Sam Silverstein and Jay Dubner. The BOCES, uh, the Bureau of uh, Collabor Collaborative Educational Services called Questar 3 uh, in Albany, adopted the program a few years ago. And uh, if you go to their website, uh, you can uh, see that they're doing exactly the same thing using uh, SUNY Albany, using uh, RPI, uh, the Wadsworth Health Labs, uh, that they are taking advantage of all the uh, higher education institutes around them and uh, uh, achieving what I uh, anticipate is the same results. I've been up there to see their teachers in action on Professional Development Day. It's spectacular. By the way, we insist that everybody eat lunch together because it creates a social atmosphere in which teachers get to know each other, trust each other, and by the middle of the summer, every group becomes a professional learning community, something that doesn't exist in most public schools. Let me go back to your own data now. Uh, here's on uh, NECAP, the New England Common Assessment Program for New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, and Rhode Island. And here's how Hanover High School does on the latest NECAP. Uh, uh, less than 10% of the kids are below proficient. Uh, and uh, or or uh, at basic, this is below basic, basic, uh, this is intermediate, and this is highly proficient with distinction. And you see that Hanover High School and Lebanon High School in reading do pretty well. That's the situation in math. Virtually nobody in those two high schools uh, is proficient with distinction, and there are some uh, there are some differences in the middle. So what I did was I simply and here are the science exam scores, and again, uh, virtually nobody is outstanding. In this community, that doesn't make sense. The resources in this community are staggering. There's no reason why these two high schools should perform at this level. So what I did was say that if 10% of the uh, Lebanon high school kids uh, were moved up uh, from 
uh, level two to level three, this is what the curve would look like. If 10% of the Hanover High School kids were moved up from level three to level four, this is what the curve would like. My friends, you can do this. You can make this happen. I'm here to urge you to think about how you can operate this kind of a program. It's in your self-interest to do so. The, it's your own kids and your staff's kids going to these schools. You can raise the level of their performance. And in so doing, you will raise the level of their ability to do good things wherever they go to college and in life. You've already started this uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock mobile simulation unit and are collaborating with three high schools in teaching kids how to do emergency medicine. But you can do much more. And as I've said before, it's in your own self-interest to do it. Uh, ben Franklin, I think, put it best. He said, tell me and I will forget Teach me and I may remember, involve me hands-on, and I will learn. That's the lesson for today's uh, uh, Grand Rounds. Uh, I hope uh, I've said it as well as Ben did. Thank you very much. So thank you, and we do have some time for questions. Does anybody want to start with a question? So, Sam, you talked about two programs in New York. about other places in the country? Has it taken off anywhere? Uh, when the woman who ran Stanford's uh, science outreach was a colleague of mine and had been involved in what's called the Industry Initiative for Science and Math in California, she actually replicated the program at Stanford uh, and uh, had a lot of success. The problem is she didn't collect any data uh, to look at outcomes. Collecting outcomes is a terribly difficult problem in schools because of privacy issues for all kinds of reasons, and schools don't like you're putting them under the microscope. One of the advantages of this collaboration with uh, the BOCES in Albany is they have all the data. So they don't have to ask anybody, they just use the data uh, that comes to them automatically and are looking now at how their program worked. Uh, uh, I'm sorry to say that uh, the only place that adopted this program as soon as we published the science article was Singapore. Singapore didn't waste a minute. They read this and said, oh, and uh, had Jay Dubner there, and he explained to them how we did this, and they set up the program. Uh, so uh, the rich keep getting better because they're using their heads. We can do it too. We're not stupid people. Uh, we, it's evident uh, what we can do. You know, if you have a medical therapy which works and improves the health of 10% of your patients, you use it until something better comes along. I'm not claiming this is the cure for science uh, education in the United States. There are lots of, uh, lots of reasons and problems associated with uh, science education. Uh, and health education. Uh, but uh, you make a 10% difference, and then you make another 10% difference. That's the way I do science, and that's the way you do uh, science and health. Yes? Could you speak more about the funding? Is it all? The, so, the, the fund, when I was an undergraduate, uh, my class, class of 58, got John Dickey very angry. And so he called us together in Dartmouth Hall, and I'll never forget it. It was more than 50 years ago, and I can still see John Dickey standing up there saying, you gentlemen don't know what it's like living with your palm up. I started this program, and I know what it's like living with your palm up, because I've been raising money for this program for now for 27 years. Uh, it costs about $300,000 a year, and I've gotten that all from grants. So I raised for... Uh, for education, something over $7 million. Uh, 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 I won't say it's easy, and there are years when uh, the stipend and the monies for teachers' uh, equipment has gone down because I had less money to, uh, to provide. The biggest thing you need here is an administrator. 
Uh, the grants are happy to pay for the teacher stipend. They're happy to pay for things that have to do with the teachers. But nobody wants to pay for an administrator to run the program. Uh, and you need an administrator to run the program. It's really hard to do it without. And that's where institutions come about. Uh, I know Dartmouth has financial problems, uh, but nothing would make you, would save you more money than having fewer illiterate or enumerate patients in your clinics. You've seen the numbers. There was someone up here. Can, can you speak to the experiences of the scientists who give their time and um, their commitment to the program? Sure. We have, uh, we have uh, a faculty who've had seven teachers, eight teachers in their labs. We've had faculty who've had only one. Uh, it's entirely random because uh, if we need someone in astronomy, we need someone in astronomy less frequently than we need someone in biology or experimental medicine or uh, one of those disciplines. So I may call the astronomers up every third year and say, uh, I have a teacher who'd like to work in the astronomy lab. Uh, or in uh, your, uh, your seismic, uh, seismology lab. But uh, the hardcore chemistry, physics, math, uh, not math, uh, chemistry, physics, uh, and uh, biology, uh, there are many repeaters. And no one has ever said to me, uh, I had such a bad experience, I won't take another teacher. And there are some labs that have had bad experiences, and they've just said, okay, that was a bad experience, let's get on with it. Because they know that by and large, every one of these teachers is a mature adult, and most of them perform at a very high level. Yes, sir. The uh, culture of schools, uh, uh, similar to the culture of hospitals and uh, academic centers, um, is uh, complex and interpersonal. Um, what has been the reception of the individual teachers going back to, to schools, um, both from their administration and uh, um, from their peers, and obviously rocking the boat? Disappointing to the utmost. Many principals have no idea what these teachers have done, even though they've written letters of support for the teacher coming into the program. And some of the most illiterate letters I've ever received are from high school principals. I mean illiterate. Uh, so uh, uh, it is a tragedy that the leadership in many of the New York City high schools is as bad as it is but the teachers work their way around it. Remember I said at the beginning, I'm a real subversive. I am. We are inserting teachers into systems where they change what goes on in their classroom. When I first started this, we did a critical mass experiment where we had five teachers in a high school science department of 10 and wanted to know, had we changed the department? And the answer was no. I called Jerry Pine. Jerry Pine is at uh, Caltech. And uh, Caltech took over the education of Pasadena uh, Elementary School, the science education of Pasadena high, uh, Elementary School children for a period of five to 10 years. And I said, Jerry, we're not seeing a critical mass uh, effect. And Jerry said, you won't see any effect with any teacher that you don't work with individually. And that's what I meant when I said initially, we are doing this not to change the system, because I don't know how to change the system. Uh, and that, frankly, I hate to say this, but is above my pay grade. Uh, and no one's asking me anyway, <laughs> even if it were within my pay grade, right? But we do know how to change individual teachers. And that's the point. The point is very simple. You're changing the world with PhD students one at a time. And you're changing the world with teachers one at a time. You get higher performing teachers. And finally, the schools are going to wake up and say, 
why is our chemistry department have 33% of the kids passing the regents year after year? That's not a course, that's a destruction derby. No chemistry department worth its salt should sit and allow 33% pass rate year after year, and there are schools in New York like that. But there are lots of good ways of teaching chemistry. This is one. Uh, there's a program called PERC that Pam Mills at uh, Hunter College uh, has pioneered. It's uh, where she changes the whole classroom, uh, the whole way of teaching. And uh, it's been a spectacular success. Uh, so there are lots of ways of doing this uh, if you're willing to work hard and implement it. Uh, but if you're going to count on the principal to help you, the best I think you can do is say to the principal, please make sure that this teacher's teaching assignment next year is the same as this year because that's what he or she is learning to do extraordinarily well. I think we've reached the end of the hour. I, I want to thank you for sharing your experience with us and um, for giving us a chance to think about our role as educators in a very different way. Thank you. Um, if you're willing to stay, if there are additional I'm questions. willing to stay. That's great. So thank you. Yeah.